Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. This week, my guest is Millie Hill, a prominent British author whose books include The Positive Birth Book, A New Approach to Pregnancy, and Give Birth Like a Feminist. Now, this is not going to be a podcast episode about birthing. No one wants to hear John Kay talk about giving birth like a feminist. But Miss Hill's expertise in birthing is important to understand what happened to her last year, when she suggested on social media, ever so diplomatically, that maybe the proper term for the people who give birth is women, as opposed to birthing people, which has become the new preferred gender-neutral term among some progressives. In our discussion, we talk about how Miss Hill was denounced on social media for even questioning who was pushing for this change in terminology and why everyone suddenly was expected to fall in line with it. Miss Hill told her full story in a July 10th blog entry titled, I Will Not Be Silenced. And in that essay, she detailed how some of the people and organizations she'd supported for years turned on her. As we'll hear in the interview that follows, it was an eye-opening experience for Miss Hill, as many of the doulas, hypnotherapists, birthing coaches, and activists who usually speak the language of sweet maternal kindness suddenly had become an unforgiving mob. Can you tell me about the positive birth movement? I think that's what it was called, and what the purpose of that network was. Okay, so it was a network I set up in 2012, kind of from my living room. It started out of just a passion for birth, really, and my own feminism, really seeing other women having these traumatic births and everybody talking about birth in such a negative way. So I was blogging at the time and writing about birth a bit, and I just had this idea, you know, Facebook and social media was quite new then. <laughs> Um, and I had this idea, wouldn't it be amazing if lots of people were running little groups where women could get together with their partners, or whatever, and talk about birth. But wouldn't it be amazing if all those groups were somehow interconnected through social media? So I floated that idea out into cyberspace and the response was massive. So I ended up, you know, not necessarily thinking things through, not planning to start some global network, but it, it very quickly snowballed into a global network, which I held together through a website and social media and so it was different women around the world running these groups where pregnant women and their partners could come and talk about childbirth in a more positive light. So rather than being an antenatal class, it was more of a discussion group. There was no expert there telling them this will happen to you and then this will happen to you. It was women supporting women, women connecting to other women. At its peak, we had about 450 groups around the world. You mentioned in your story that I think it was a couple of years ago, you began to observe a change in language around childbirth. And some of these changes in language will be maybe familiar to our, our listeners. Women were replaced with birthing people. Did you notice anything demographically? Like, I'm guessing it was younger people who were using this more avant-garde, gender-neutral parlance, or was it across the board? I think it tended to be more organizations and business owners, people running birth businesses that I noticed were using it, first of all. I wasn't noticing pregnant women using it in, say, online discussions or in real life discussions, but it was more institutional 
you know, you couldn't go to a maternity event without hearing the phrase, say, in somebody's talk about improving birth or something, or, you know, whatever they were talking about, there would always be women and birthing people, or just birthing people. We know the well-intentioned origins of this. They want to be inclusive, yeah. which is fine. Was there a voice inside you that said, look, this is just language, it's not hurting anybody, it's about inclusivity, just let it slide? Yes, totally there was. And I even used the phrase myself for a while, thinking along those lines. But at the same time as all of that was going on, I was observing other things happening in the world, which I felt uneasy about. For example, you know, this idea of the affirmation model with trans children. Now, I know that doesn't sound like it's anything to do with childbirth, but for me, it felt like everything came as a package. And that if I used the phrase, you know, which seemed like another of these kind of, you know, it's like a dogma, isn't it? It's like a almost quasi-religious thing where you have to trot out these and repeat these phrases. And that phrase for me kind of had a subtext of, I sign up to the whole package. And I didn't feel comfortable about some of the other aspects of the package. That made me pause and wonder what's going on here. Things came to a head in November 2020. Yeah. So you wrote a book, Give Birth Like a Feminist. Mm -hmm. And late November, it coincided with the International Day to End Violence Against Women. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how this crisis point came to be? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd obviously been doing a lot of reading and thinking, like I say, over those past couple of years about the issues around identity and changes of language, etc. And, you know, so I had made a couple of comments. I'd been very cautious. I'd noticed that it was very difficult to discuss this on social media. I had asked a question in a midwifery group about the phrase birthing people. And I'd been told that it wasn't okay to ask that question. And I'd been asked never to post in the group again. So I was a bit like, in some ways, I feel like I was pushed towards further investigation by the response I got when I tried to investigate, because it rang alarm bells for me that there was no debate, no discussion. Everything was just just had to be agreed to. And you couldn't even ask I mean, a genuine question, like, why was birthing people the chosen expression? Because some people had said to me that they didn't like that expression. You know, they felt that it was someone made jokingly said it sounded like brood mares. Maybe that's a bit extreme, but they got a point. You know, why are we using this particular phrase? Who who chose it? I'd raised a couple of questions before, but yeah, it was the International Day to End Violence Against Women. And that day I was thinking about obstetric violence. The Venezuelans are the first people to define obstetric violence, and they define it as one of the seven forms of violence against women. But, you know, what my book is about is really how overlooked disrespect towards women in childbirth is and how much we just accept that a horrible experience is what you're going to have when you have a baby and you just have to get to the other side of it. So that day, International Day to End Violence Against Women, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about obstetric violence and someone happened to tag me in a post on Instagram. They didn't tag me in a post actually, in a comment. They said obstetric violence is about power and patriarchy. So I was like, yeah, I agree to that. And then they did use the word woman and it was a few slides. But in one of the slides, they said they used the phrase birthing people are seen as the fragile sex. And I thought that's a really interesting jumbling up of kind of two ideas there. You're bringing in this very fresh new idea of calling people birthing people with a kind of old feminist idea of women being perceived as the fragile sex. Now, it's not people who have been traditionally perceived as the fragile sex. It's women. <laughs> so I just felt like that, that language obfuscated what they were trying to say. So I made a comment, very respectfully said, I think obstetric violence is part of violence against women. They came back and said, actually, obstetric violence can happen to anyone giving birth. It can happen to trans people. It can happen to non-binary people. So I said, well, I disagree. I think it's violence against women. But if you think differently, then I think you should at least use women and birthing people. 
left it at that. <laughs> I've revisited that comment quite a few times, understandably, in the last few months, and I still don't understand how it sort of lit the fire that it did. Well, it, it Marky was a heretic. Yeah. One of the interesting things about these conversations is it sounds like the field you were in and your place in it, at least until the current moment, politically, where we find ourselves, it sounds like you would have been regarded as a very progressive voice and, and a very feminist voice. Yeah. It's not as if you're some social conservative who got airdropped into this culture. No. We think of culture wars as left-right. It sounds like this is very much a conversation among people who consider themselves progressive feminists. I don't know whether they're progressive feminists. I think a lot of the people that were taking issue with my comment were people working in the birth industry, if you want to call it that doulas, hypnobirthing teachers, etc. They've invested in that language. They've invested in that language. There is a kind of capture that's happened where everybody has signed up to it. And in fact, what happened to me was, you know, again, using this sort of heretic idea is that I was kind of dragged out in front of everybody else. And then everybody else in that industry went, whoa. Were they genuinely offended by what you said? Or was their treatment of you a sort of performative gesture to show their fidelity to this new kind of language? Well, I think it's such a mixture, it's hard to sort of unpick it and analyze it. But yes, I think some of it is a performative gesture. It's a, it's a power struggle, isn't it? I think people saw me as kind of like, in an ivory tower because I've written a couple of books and, you know, um, even being white has been used as a criticism against me. So maybe I am kind of a white middle class woman who's done okay because she's written a couple of books. And there was, I think there was an element of just that nastiness of wanting to topple somebody and power grab pushed me off my pedestal, basically. <laughs> Not that I was actually on one, but you know. Well, it being successful, it makes you more vulnerable because... It seems like one of the first things people will do as a pressure point is target your affiliation with the organization you founded or target your books, or, or did that come later? Uh, it just all came at once, really. Um, it was very, very rapid. It was just post after post on social media about me and, and really what a terrible <laughs> person that I am and you know, just calling me all kinds of names under the sun. So like I say, it was happening within a community of the birth workers of the UK mainly. So I think I was being made an example of, and I think it was a way of virtue signaling to other people. And also, sorry to say it, but in some ways, I think there was some traction for people who are running various businesses around this issue, you know, LGBTQ competency in birth, that kind of business, who were getting a lot of attention because everybody knew who I was. And so to make horrible and negative posts about me that were quite shocking was bringing a lot of traffic to their stand. Well, it's interesting because a lot of times in these discussions, people will cite these episodes as grist for an indictment against trans rights activists. But it's not always clear that real trans rights activists are behind this. You described the person who first came after you as, as a doula, a professional pregnancy and labor supporter. And I've done a little bit of digging here. Like a lot of the people who came after you, if you look at their social media profiles, it's all milk and honey and rainbows and inclusivity and let's all be nice to each other and yeah. preaching the gospel of human kindness. <laughs> but then the flip side of that is once they've decided that your use of language makes you an enemy of human kindness, a switch just gets flipped and it becomes sociopathic might be an exaggeration, but it seems really crazy the way they came after you. Had you ever seen anything like that? No, I mean, I've never, certainly never experienced anything like it in my life. The names that I was called, it was just unbelievable, really. And, and being accused of things like violence and being a vile creature and that I shouldn't be allowed within a hundred yards of a pregnant person and all of this kind of stuff that 
implied that I was literally, literally dangerous. The word dangerous was used about me. And, and it does seem, like you say, completely at odds with someone who's running a business which is about supporting, basically supporting women mainly in, in birth. And that is kind of like a very holistic, touchy-feely, warm, soft hugs kind of industry to then using that sort of rhetoric and trying to sort of really destroy somebody. It just doesn't make sense. It is. It was really difficult to understand. And I have to be honest, when I was writing a thick of it, I had to start thinking, I am a bad person because otherwise it doesn't make sense. And now a commercial message from Blinkist. If you're like me, you have a passion for self-improvement. Unfortunately, when it comes to, say, getting fit or eating right or dressing better, self-improvement is really difficult. But not when it comes to learning new things and broadening your horizons, especially when you're armed with the Blinkist app. Blinkist takes non-fiction book titles, pulls out the key takeaways, and puts them into text and audio explainers called Blinks that give you the most important information in just 15 minutes. Use Blinks to learn about topics such as philosophy, history, and science, or dive into psychology, health and nutrition, or personal growth. You've got thousands of titles and 27 categories of the world's best knowledge to choose from. Some of the most popular titles, for instance, are A Short History of Brexit, The Future of Capitalism, and Letters from a Stoic. And if you're more of a podcast person, they have you covered with blinks for podcasts called shortcasts. These two are packed into powerful 15-minute reads or listens, all in one app so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist Premium Membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette, with two L's and two T's, to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. This is colloquial term is gaslighting, where you, you, you convince a person to, <laughs> to embrace a crazy thesis, convincing you that you're the, you're the hate monger, you're the one detached from reality. Mm-hmm. You often read these stories, and at Quillette we've done a number of, often they are centered in professional subcultures where the predominant leadership is female. So, you know, we've done stories, I mean, it's a stereotype, but romance novels, young adult fiction. Knitting. Knitting, yeah, we had, we, we had a trilogy. <laughs> Is it the case that, rightly or wrongly, women operating in these fields feel like they have more leverage when they apply these campaigns against female targets because women are socially conditioned maybe to just fall in line more or or get with the team? It just seems like a lot of the targets here are women. Yeah, well, I wish I knew the answer. Obviously, a lot of the demand for language change as well is happening in female industries and areas as well so there's that to kind of add into the mix obviously as a woman myself I don't like to think that women have this kind of particular strand of their personality that makes them you know nasty and aggressive but then I guess you know men do too in in other areas so I don't know perhaps that's how we we act out our negative feelings whereas men might use violence I, I, I don't know the answer I think it's really complicated and it's it's a shame but yes, it's certainly women who are 
constantly being attacked. I mean, there was a great article over the weekend about these issues written by a man. And you could already predict, this was in the UK press, that he wasn't going to get anything like the pushback on Twitter or anywhere else that a woman would have got if they'd said the same thing. So is it an internalized misogyny? Is it just something about women being a bit more vulnerable? I don't know. If not, them being more vulnerable, but just the expectation that they are more vulnerable. And so the increased willingness to weaponize against them the rhetoric that basically says, get with the team, you're an outlier, you're not supporting others, you're being unkind, you're being violent. Yeah. Again, because of the stereotypes in our society, these are especially hurtful barbs to launch at someone like you. They knew where to hurt you. There's a certain ruthless genius to this is that they couldn't come after someone like me on this basis because I don't present myself as being (laughs) kind and gentle. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's almost like that Jungian shadow thing. They're trying to say there she is in the light helping these people, but she has this dark side and it's, it's actually all the opposite of what she's showing you. And that was kind of definitely what brought up for me was, am I the person that I think I am, you know, or do I have this dark side within me that is violent and hateful and toxic and all the things they said I was? We had a guest on the Quillette podcast, a British academic who's been working on Hong Kong for a while, Peter Baer. Uh, is his name. He recently wrote a book called The Unmasking Style in argumentation and political rhetoric. The idea that instead of attacking the substance of your opponent's arguments, you attempt to unmask them. Mm. You suggest that their words have caused the mask to fall and that they've revealed themselves to be a demon. And, And some of the language used to describe you is demonic. But in this debate, you also have to be careful about who your allies are. And I've had this discussion with liberals where One of the reasons that they don't want to be forthright in coming out against their critics in the way you have is they don't want to go on Fox News. They don't want, in some cases, extremists on the other side of the political spectrum, who in some cases are genuine transphobes. They're people who really uh, do answer to the description of of people who who hate transgender people. Is that something you've had to navigate uh, in terms of who your allies are? Yeah, definitely. And it's something that I'm still navigating. You know, I had a lot of good advice before I published my story, um, including from a very good friend who has a trans sibling. And we talked through a lot of issues from their perspective. And it was very important to me that I didn't say anything hateful or bigoted or transphobic. Um, But yes, I have since it's been published, a lot of the invitations that I've had to speak on things have been from that sort of, Fox News haven't asked me, but some invitations of similar nature. And I've said no to them mostly. But it is very difficult to navigate because there are some people who are in this debate who are portrayed in a terrible light, even though they're actually, they actually aren't doing anything hateful. J.K. Rowling is a classic example. She's never said anything hateful or transphobic. If you ask anybody, show me what she said that's transphobic. She's done what I've done. Same line she's taken, I guess, is to say, I am not going to nod along with this. I'm not going to say your mantras. I think that women are something different. Women are women and it's biological. And as soon as you say that, I mean, I said this in my post as well, that the bar for what is transphobic has been set so low that it's very easy to be transphobic because the qualifications for it are really minimal. <laughs> Just saying that a woman is something different and it, an adult human female is is considered to be by many people transphobic. So 
it is very difficult to navigate. There are other people, I don't know if you know the guy called Graham Linehan who got kicked off Twitter. I've been asked to go on one of his YouTube things and I'm still thinking about it and I go around in circles because part of me thinks, well, this is a person who's actually standing up and saying what they think and what's wrong with that? And then you think, oh, but what if I don't want to position myself as hateful in any way to any person because that's just falling into the trap, if you like, of this polarized discussion. Well, Graham's an interesting example because I don't think he's hateful per se, but he's definitely somebody who has taken off the gloves in terms of rhetoric yeah. and, and, and paid a price for it. But you're in the UK. There is um, a sisterhood of people who've been fighting this battle for a while. I'm thinking of, of Helen Joyce, yeah. who's been on the podcast. Kathleen Stock, a philosopher, yeah. Sussex University, I think, that, uh, if I'm getting that right. She's been a Quillette contributor. Both of them have books. When this happened to you, to a certain extent, were you able to plug in to that support network? Uh, I, I imagine that three or four years ago, it might have been a very different experience you had. The support that I've had has been absolutely unbelievable. I was saying on Twitter the other day that I wish I tried to find a way of documenting it because I know when you say this, people think, oh, she's just saying that. You know, she hasn't had, she's had a couple of emails and then a whole load of death threats. <laughs> but you can't because if you're getting private messages. Yeah, no, you'd have to obviously get permission from people and maybe, you know, anonymize them. But I mean, I have literally had thousands of messages from people supporting me including from some of the people you mentioned and lots of other feminists who I really admire. So that has been wonderful. And I have hardly had any negativity at all, to be honest. Well, the negativity is public and often the support is private, but that, mm. that creates its own frustration. I'm sure at least some of those people say, I wish I could say this publicly, yeah. which is a very bittersweet message to get. It's nice that you're standing with me, but yeah, it would be. <laughs> but I understand that, you know, now. and I mean, I, I understand how complicated this is for people because a lot of the time it's about livelihoods, you know, and I have said to friends who, for example, are associated with me in any kind of way. You know, I've said you don't have to publicly support me because one message of support privately is is great. To then stick your neck out and go on social media or whatever or make any kind of statement, I understand if people are reluctant to do that. Well, it's one thing not to support you publicly. It's another thing to denounce you publicly. And you're very generous. At one point you say, well, I'm not going to name some of the people, including this doula who came after you, Hammer and Tongs, right at the beginning. Mm. If I remember correctly, you don't cite her name because you don't want her to get piled on. But in the case of the organization, you founded it, Birthrights. They put out a statement with, I, I don't think they didn't mention your name. But for anybody who is familiar with the controversy, they denounced you more or less, or at least denounced your ideas. Is, is that right? Yeah. Just for clarity, I, I didn't found birthrights, but I, I was there, you know, at their inaugural conference. And I've known all of the people involved in it for nearly a decade and supported them wholeheartedly in everything that I've done. They're featured in my books. They're featured in any article I write. So this aspect of things has been very difficult for me. But yes, they did a post when the sort of fires were blazing back in November 2020. They um, did a post on their social media. They didn't name me, but everyone who was involved in the birth community knew that they were talking about me. And, it, you know, they said, we're an inclusive organization and we won't work with people who don't share our values. They talked about how they would use the phrase women and birthing people. So it was like really clear that it was about me. <laughs> and very quickly, I was tagged by people in that post and more abusive comments were left after that. So for me, that was so disappointing because I just felt like, like you say, you don't have to get involved. There was no need for them to 
get involved in a horrible, acid, kind of nasty... But also a very cultish way. The language I find in those things, it really is the language of denouncing apostates. Yeah. And if you change a few words, it could be sort of the interwar language that Bolsheviks and Mensheviks used to denounce each other... Mm. Or the language that religious people use to denounce folks who've embraced heresies or whatnot. Yeah, I, I can't understand how intelligent people who I know started that organization with feminist ideas about improving birth for women. And indeed, that's what all of their charitable objectives are talk about women, all about human rights and women's rights in, in childbirth. So I can't understand really how people who have got those roots are now writing something where they cannot see the irony of writing an inclusion statement, which is basically about exclusion. It's saying, these are the people we won't include. These are the people we won't work with. But do they actually believe this thing? So I'm going to quote from it. Birthrights is very clear that we are an inclusive organization and are here for everyone who gives birth. We reject any suggestion that respecting pregnant, non-binary, and trans people diminishes women's rights. You undermine trans and non-binary people. I'm reading here from an email from the CEO of Birthrights. Yeah, they sent me that late at night. Yeah, and you you were about to get you were about to get to the bit that's really quite extraordinary in that email as well. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm going to keep going. You undermine trans and non-binary people and state that people can only be male or female. Yeah, that's called biology. <laughs> it's anti-science. When you get this, so do you think the person who wrote this actually believes the content, or do you think it is possible? where 20 people in a room will collectively reach a decision that not a single person in the room agrees with because they feel like every other person in the room will judge them negatively if they don't hop on board with the cultish nonsense. But no one actually believes the cultish nonsense. They just believe that other people in the room will stigmatize them if they don't sign on to it. Or do you think the people at Birthrights are true believers? I think it's a bit of both because I think that in the birth world, certainly there is a massive confusion between sex and gender. So I think when they say that it's wrong of me, for example, to say that people can be only male or female, they're talking about gender and I'm talking about sex. And when I say obstetric violence is violence against women, I'm talking about sex. I'm talking about women, for me, means people of the female sex. Whereas for them, women is an identity and a gender. They've said in another statement that I've said that trans and non-binary people can't experience obstetric violence. Well, that isn't what I've said. I've said that they can experience obstetric violence, but they're experiencing it because they are biologically women, women meaning a, a female person. <laughs> so I think that's where some of it's getting lost because there is a lot of misinformation. And I mean, you know an awful lot about this, you know, how these things can spread on social media. But I think in, in terms of the group, for example, where I was told I wasn't to question the term birthing people, well, that's a massive group. It's a group for student midwives. The stuff that people are coming out with about spectrums between male and female, etc., and even midwives are being fed this misinformation. And so then when somebody like me says, actually, it's women who give birth, they think I'm, I am being transphobic to them because they think I'm saying trans people can't give birth. Well, then of course they can. Well, I'm not trying to exclude anybody who's trans. I'm just saying that we can't change the meaning of the word woman, especially when we're involved in reproduction and biology as, as a profession. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, 
stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. I'd like to talk a little bit about the subplot where they bring race into it. This is somebody associated with the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers shared a meme called, quote, how to give birth like an exclusionary white feminist. And then (laughs) she writes, not at all cultishly, Millie Hill, we shouldn't be buying her books. We shouldn't be gifting them. We shouldn't be following her. We shouldn't be quoting her. She has dangerous opinions, beliefs, and views, end quote, as if you were like the Trotsky of the birthing movement. Someone wrote, she's massively racist too. And then when somebody asked for clarification on that, it's airily said, oh, she's just deleted all those posts. It seems very important for the people criticizing you to believe that your alleged transphobia is part of some other nefarious package that includes all these other bigotries. The thing that's crazy about it is this gender movement on its radical fringe, I associate very much with privileged white people. All of the people who are sort of were involved in this pylon are white, as far as I know. And I've had many people supporting me who are people of colour. So it doesn't seem to be any pattern there. I think there is a social justice element to it. There are other stories of things that have happened to me from the same people, which I haven't told within that blog post because it would have made it too long and too complicated. But some of the same people that have accused me of transphobia have in the past accused me of being a racist. One time I was asked to write an article about the disparity in outcomes for black women in maternity. And I'd been doing a lot of reading about all of these issues. And I I said to the person who asked me, this was an editor, I think it would be better if you asked somebody, BAME, to write this article instead of me. So they did. They asked a journalist of colour to write the article. And then that journalist came to me asking if I could help them find some people to give quotes for the article because I've got this great big network. So I did a post on social media about that, and I was accused of racism by the same group of people at the time. I didn't really understand why. Then I tried to explain myself and say, you know, I've given this article to somebody else. I've actually tried to do the right thing here. I tried to to give it to a woman of colour, and I was then called a white saviour. And then when I said, oh, I'm I'm getting a bit upset now and I can't really carry on with this thread, I was like, oh, that's just white tears. So there's there's definitely a bit of bullying going on there, which is kind of part of the story, but not central to what's happened in the last few months. Another time, uh, the second time it happened, I was accused of racism was after the death of George Floyd. I was also in lockdown with my kids at the time. I've got three kids and I felt like I wanted to do something like many of us did. I wanted to do something positive. I saw people were posting black squares and I was already quite anxious having already in the past had people say things about me that I was getting things wrong on that front. I was trying to get on board, right? Can I get this right? 
So I put the black square up, then I took it down again because I saw people saying, it's such a minefield, this situation, isn't it? You want to do the right thing. But so then I did a post saying I was so busy because of being in lockdown, but I would be happy to give the platform that I have, like 100,000 social media followers kind of thing, over to any BAME person who would like to use it. So I offered the platform up and the same people came to me and said, are you going to pay these people to do your work for you? And I said, well, that kind of wasn't the idea. The idea was just have the platform. But yeah, you know, I could potentially pay people, I suppose, that kind of wasn't the principle of it. That all snowballed. So (laughs) no good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) Yeah. Let's finish on something positive. Among the people who've come forward with support, have there been people who are part of the trans community who have commented thoughtfully or expressed support? Or or has this just been a conversation largely among women in the birthing movement? Well, I think the majority of support I've had, I have to say, has not been from people in the birth community. I think people in the birth community still feel very silenced and unable to support me. They've either contacted me privately to say, we can't support you publicly, but we do support you privately, or they've disappeared out of my life completely. The biggest support I've had is from the feminist community in in the UK, gender critical feminists, basically. My following on Twitter has kind of doubled in the last couple of weeks. And I've had some amazing messages from women all over the world saying thank you for standing up for women and for women's rights. I have had a few messages from trans people. And I've had a lot of messages from gay people and lesbian people because I think they also feel that there is a a conflict of rights here and a potential undermining of their identity if the idea of biological sex is lost because they are same-sex attracted. (laughs) So I've had a lot of supportive messages from them. I've had one conversation with a trans man in the UK who gave birth. We did talk quite a lot, but I think think in the end, you know, it, it really was, I said to him at the end, it's a bit like you're trying to make me to have a religious belief. It's just not going to happen. You know, it's not that it's impossible for me to be religious. It's just that I'm not ever going to be religious. I just can't sign up to that that perspective. And again, it's, it really is about sex and gender, you know, because he was saying to me, well, what are these conflicts of rights? And when I said to him about the many gay and lesbian people who've got in touch with me, he said, well, that's that's completely offensive. I am a gay man. Well, he is biologically female. He's had a baby. So I think there are lots of gay people who would say that's not really what constitutes being a gay man. And that would be destructive to a gay person's sense of what it means to be gay. And I'm not saying that either person on those two sides of the perspective are right or wrong. But I mean, there is a conflict there. um, And this trans person can't, can't see that. So it does feel a bit like bashing your head against a brick wall. But yeah, there are there are trans people in the UK. Um who are very vocally supportive of gender-critical feminists. Well, thank you very much for discussing your story here on the Colette Podcast. For those who want to learn more, they can go to www.milliehill.co.uk and you can follow her on Twitter, as apparently thousands of new people are starting to do. (laughs) Before I let you go, has that part at least been a blessing? Is this the ability to to connect with more people? The whole thing, to be honest, has been a blessing. It's really important to say that, that I feel about a thousand million times better for having told my story because, you know, it's just been so cathartic. I've been bottling it up. You know, there is a a part of yourself that feels like I must be a bad person if all these people saying these awful things. And, you know, you really go into sort of downward spiral of negativity and low self-esteem. And it has a power over you. If people are saying, shut up, throw her books in the bin, get rid of this person, and you actually do go away and kind of disappear yourself, then you feel like they've won. 
So I think coming back and actually just being honest about what happened and letting people again make their own minds up how they feel about me after this is quite empowering for me because I just feel like, well, no one's got anything on me anymore. Now I just feel like, well, I've said it now and you can do what you want. I think all the people that were bullying and attacking me are kind of falling over themselves now because they just, where do they go from here? What can they do now? They've lost their power. Thanks for being brave and thanks for talking to our audience. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.